0: Hello, I'm Jason Barnwell. I work on legal business operations and strategy issues for Microsoft. Today I'm chatting with John Palmer, Associate General Counsel in Microsoft's litigation competition and compliance group. It might be easier to describe what doesn't fall uh, into your scope of responsibility, John? I think, from a litigation standpoint, you have a, you and your team have a very large docket, and I think, with the exception of intellectual property litigation, uh, class actions, and a couple other uh, odd and sundry, you you have most of the rest. Yes. That
1: that that sounds right. We even have a couple intellectual intellectual property cases uh, on sort of the soft IP side and we have a few class actions too so.
0: Wow, uh, okay.
1: We, we call ourselves the non-IP lit- or the non-patent <laughs> litigation team. <laughs> it's kind of an awkward title.
0: So your team covers the waterfront and uh, I, I also have the benefit of seeing uh, the spend for all the department and I, I would say very quietly uh, your team uh, commands uh, quite a bit of spend with some fantastic outside counsel. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me today.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me.
0: So I wanted to start off with a little bit of background. So you came to Microsoft from Oric, and I happen to know a little bit of, of your background because we have some intersection. <clears throat> How did you get to Oric?
1: Yeah, that's right. We intersected at uh, a firm called Heller Ehrman. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, so I was at uh, I was at Heller Ehrman for many years, uh, and I was uh, at the end of the managing partner of Heller Ehrman's Asian offices. Uh, and managing those offices in Shanghai and Beijing and Hong Kong and Singapore. You, and you opened those offices, right? I opened the, Sh- the Shanghai. Shanghai office, yep. yeah. And uh, as you know, the firm uh, met an untimely demise and, and ended up going bankrupt. Uh, we, and, and a bunch of partners from and, ended up going to Oric, uh, which was a really great landing spot for us. So I joined Oric's Antitrust litigation team.
0: I'm curious, was it, what did your Heller experience teach you about running a law firm as a business? Like, What lessons did you take away from that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 a lot is is a short answer. I, I, I learned some hard lessons of those years in Asia um, in that management role, but I, I think for, for purposes of some of the things we're going to talk about today, I think there are probably two features that really stand out and they're obvious this will be obvious to anybody who's worked with law firms or comes from law firms but the first feature um, is is really almost says everything which is they don't sell they have no assets other than the the reputation of their lawyers and reputation of the firm Um, and the second feature is that they, they sell hours basically they sell uh, hours to clients and uh, that really drives it's a very simple business model when you get right down to it and it really drives intense competition for talent and intense competition uh, for clients and I think those that competition and that that uh, sort of business model runs up against some stresses uh, that we're going to talk about a little bit today I think when you when you think about how they serve um, sophisticated clients like Microsoft.
0: Mm-hmm. So you went to Oric, you had a great career there. What ultimately caused you to think about coming to Microsoft? Well,
1: Microsoft had been a client of mine for many years. Um, I really enjoyed working with the litigation team here. I knew, I think, almost everybody uh, in the litigation team i had been uh, probably since the late 90s uh, working on Microsoft cases, and I, I, I really did feel that uh, what was LCA at that time, but in particular the litigation group at Microsoft was, you know, by far the most uh, sophisticated and interesting and fun group of people to work with um, of all the clients that I had over the years. So, it was, a, it was actually an easy decision for me.
0: Mm-hmm. So again, so one of the common themes that keeps showing up in these discussions is just how relationship-driven so much of our work is. And I think Oric and Heller had, well, I'd say Oric has and Heller had fantastic and deep relationships with Microsoft that go back such a long time. And I'll note now that you are acting as our engagement lead with Oric, and really it is of your role to think about what the relationship looks like how you can help our partners grow that and i would say that the the background and the connections that you have with or make you especially effective in that role and so what we are grateful that you do that for us i want to transition a little bit and talk about really the the starting point of this conversation. So if we go back several months, uh, one one of the things I do is I kind of wander around and I look for open office doors and I grab people. And you're one of those people that I will just stumble in and if I see your door open and you don't look too busy, I'll just bother you with something. And I will remark that you are always amazingly generous with your time. But what kicked this off was you took us on a tangent that I found very instructive and interesting. And it comes down to thinking about how you get law firms to work together because going back to some of your observations it's a very competitive market you know the dynamics in the business are are complex and you have driven you know people who are really at the top of their game and so one of the things that i've observed is that you have a very deft touch getting these folks to work together on your issues and so that's that's where I'd like to take us today. And so let's start off with, why do you have firms partner? What what are you solving for when you do that?
1: Well, yeah, let me let me give a little bit of background even before I get to that. Please to the answer for, to that question, Jason. The my background really uh, in this goes, I think probably to 1999 or 2000 when Heller Ehrman itself was paired with Sullivan and Cromwell to work on. Uh, antitrust cases for Microsoft, and then we were paired with Sidley Austin, and we were paired with Munger Tolles, and we were paired with a number of other terrific law firms. And uh, as a you know senior associate and then you know junior partner working on those matters, um, I thought it was really fascinating and at times difficult. I won't lie, but ultimately I felt like the the client was getting the benefit of of. The best from both firms and both teams, and, and at times even three teams, um, which sounds crazy, I know. But it 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 it's if the matters are important enough, and they're sophisticated enough, and they're big enough, uh, and and you have those types of uh, management complexities, um, I, I found it really instructive just as as a lawyer on the other side of this equation. Um, and so when I came to Microsoft, it was a model that was familiar to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and uh, I think the, you know, there are a number of cases where it really works well. Obviously, you're not going to do this in, you know, every commercial case or, you know, single plaintiff employment case or even every, you know, really complex matter. There are certain types of cases that, that lend themselves more to the, the two firm model. And, you know, I can probably give you a few examples that might. Flush it out a little bit. I mean, there are sometimes substantive complements, right? So, if you take the secrecy order case that we brought in the Western District um, a few years back, where we sued the United States government, uh, we had a firm in Covington and Burling that had very deep expertise, institutional expertise, institutional knowledge, and deep expertise on the on the you know government affairs side and the white collar criminal side. And then we had a firm, Davis Wright Tremaine, that had a very strong First Amendment practice. And that case was, of course, really rooted in our First Amendment uh, interests. And so that seemed like a, a great match and was also a great match incidentally geographically because we had a strong DC presence with Covington. We had a strong Seattle presence and a great uh, Seattle trial lawyer in, in Steve Rummage. So that, that just really made sense. And that's a, that's an example of, I think, where we absolutely got the best out of both firms and i'm always looking for these cases where we make one plus one equal three and that's a case you know there are sometimes operational uh complements you know where uh maybe you have some work that's more commoditized that should be done for a lower rate and and you know but you have other work that's on the high end of the the sophistication spectrum uh and you want to pair you know a those two firms, two different firms together to handle that different type of work. Sometimes, um, you know, the operational compliments just come in, the fact that you have multiple, you're fighting multiple fronts at, at one time. So I'll give you an example, the, the uh, Samsung case we brought against Samsung several years ago. We had Oric working on the antitrust issues in Korea and IP issues, which were very much intertwined with the commercial dispute we had against Samsung. And, uh, but we had, we needed a firm that really had a strong New York litigation presence because that's where we had to bring the case uh, in New York City, you know, high profile trial lawyer and also had a strong international arbitration practice. So we took, we chose Decker, which was a terrific firm for that purpose, but we paired them with Oric because Oric had, there was a, a, a sort of operational need to be coordinated in those two efforts. Uh, and that uh, that worked really well. Sometimes there are geographic complements. I've already talked about the the Davis, Wright, Tremaine, Covington, um, you know, the g- geographic complements. But but you know that happens in almost any case that we bring uh, where we need a local perspective, right? If you're if you're dealing with a case in Birmingham, Alabama, you want a Birmingham, Alabama lawyer on your team or firm, right? Uh, you may not have that. That lawyer may not have the uh, the particular subject matter expertise or institutional knowledge, but you definitely need that perspective. And you know the best example, recent example of that in my mind is the Canadian class action, the the, the um, antitrust class actions that that I was just able to settle, um, just finalized uh, at the end of last year. We had very fine Canadian trial counsel. But again, we paired them with ORIC because ORIC had this huge history of lit- of litigating similar issues in the United States, and there were some satellite litigation issues in the United States, and it really made sense to put those two um, ge- ge- geographies together for purposes of that. And sometimes it's a combination of many of those things, and then sometimes, and you and I have talked about this, sometimes you just have a case that is so important uh, that you know is you know is of such critical um, focus to the company uh, that you just want another set of eyes. You need you know all the smart people you can get, frankly, uh, to bring to bear and to look at the problem. And you 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 gain great perspective by doing that. And I think the best example of that is the warrant case where Covington. Um, who was our traditional counsel on those types of issues, you know, government access to data, um, was doing a great job, uh, but, you know, it was such an important issue um, that we felt bringing another team in, in that case, it was Oric, the Oric team, the appellate team, to look at those same issues and just provide a different perspective. We thought was was really helpful. So sometimes that's all it is. You need to red team, blue team it. You need you know, some out-of-the-box thinking, you need a fresh set of eyes, and that's a reason to bring in another firm.
0: So, that is a really helpful kind of fact pattern set of descriptives that that lay out why you would do that. And I like the framing, which is you're really looking for complements where the sum is greater than the parts. Absolutely. And that makes a lot of sense. uh, I'd like to get into a little bit of lawyer uh, psychology uh, for a second, because as you alluded to earlier, uh, from your experience, sometimes it's a little bit complicated to, you know, put these folks in close quarters with each other. And so I guess I'm I'm really <laughs> curious, how do you manage some of the inherent conflict that might arise when you put these different, when you try to make teams out of these different firms, these different organizations, how, how do you manage that? How do you think about it?
1: Yeah, well, I think probably the first, <laughs> the first and best way to manage it is, is to pick people that, that, you know, are going to fit that paradigm. Um, and we can get into that, that later, but, um, the, if you do, you know, it, I think you're right. It is inevitable, no matter how fine the people are or what professionals they may be, that there will be disagreements or there, there may be ambiguities that need to be resolved. You know, sort of the rule of thumb I use is if there are personal, um, difficulties or personal, um, conflicts uh you know that's not my job they they're perfect prof- these, these folks are professionals they ought to be able to talk to one another and resolve personal difficulties um and uh you know I, I expect them to do that if there are ambiguities in terms of you know what roles people should play or you know who's in charge of what by all means i i am the manager of that team, and I think it's perfectly appropriate to to escalate those. Um, But in in large part, where it works well, you have people that are able to manage uh, whatever internal team uh, conflicts or or team dynamics uh, that there may be uh, without, without in essence, um, bringing me into the problem, Uh, and and that's, that's ideal.
0: So the first order solution is is really look for great people. That's yes, that's what I think absolutely. I Absolutely. Okay. And that probably takes at least most of the headache off. Because the
1: there team. is a personality type, I yeah. think.
0: That's fair. So do you so going into some of the ambiguity you're talking about? Do you ever find that you have to help them prioritize their work and and understand where to focus or does it ever get more complicated when you have multiple players kind of in the space trying to figure out what to do?
1: It can get more complicated, to be sure. I don't want to um, suggest that it's always, uh, you know, sweet-smelling roses. Uh, I do make an effort to try to define swim lanes, but but here's the catch. You want to define swim lanes and, and roles of responsibility without stamping out the benefit of collaboration and having these multiple perspectives so I do make an effort to define the swim lanes pretty clearly uh, but at the same time I encourage uh, the teams and this is at my cost but I think I end up saving money in the end frankly I, I want to encourage the teams to review each other's drafts to meet together, to pick up the phone I'll pay for that, I have no problem I think I get a benefit from that Bounce ideas off one another. Try to where you can to reach consensus to bring strategic advice to me, but do it in a way that fleshes out what the you know the, 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 the dynamic was or the conversation was among the lawyers on the team. Make me a part of those conversations where, and I'm talking now about strategic dis- discussions, legal discussions. Make me a part of those you know as a team member but also as the leader of the team so that we can reach decisions together so I want to define the swim lanes but I don't want them to be so rigid that it just becomes you know two siloed teams working on two different matters who don't talk to each other that's um, that that really really destroys frankly the benefit of having um, you know these firms that complement one another work on a problem together um, with that said it's important to have a leader Somebody needs to, you know, it's important to have a lead trial lawyer. So if you have two firms, let's take the Canadian antitrust uh, class actions, for instance. Um, Terrific lawyer in Canada, Jeff Cowper at the Faskins firm. He was the lead trial lawyer. When I was at Heller-Ehrman working with Sullivan and Cromwell on those matters, you know, Rich Wallace and Steve Ashbacher made it very clear that David Tolchin at Sullivan was the lead trial lawyer. You know, the buck has to stop with somebody on the trial team. Um, but you can't uh, design a management system or or swim lanes, use the word we've been talking about, you know, so rigidly that you don't get the benefit of that collaboration. Team meetings, I, I always have regular team meetings. Uh, include, you know, I, I try very hard not to talk to the teams separately um, because I want everybody to to work together, and so. Uh, set up periodic team meetings, whether it's weekly, in the Samsung case, it was daily. Um, sometimes that's what's required. Um, and, you know, that I think encourages good communication and, and um, you, you get the benefit of collaboration that way. So, um, I guess, you know, I'm not sure those are our management tools, but um, I, I would describe it as unstructured structure.
0: Uh, I think I heard some some management tools so one strong leadership, uh, two really mandating people working together. three trying to create let's let's call it a form of psychological safety in in that people are going to need to work together and feel good about that yeah. um, but also empowering people to go find the right solutions. Yeah. So I think there's a lot in there.
1: I think the psychological safety piece is huge, Jason um, and and you know, it's. It, yeah, I think it sort of transcends the situation we're talking about here with two law firms. But you, there can't, for the reasons we talked about at the beginning, there's a natural competition. These firms are in competition for talent. They're in competition for clients. They're in, t- in competition for our work, right? And this model threatens that, right? It threatens. It threatens their model. Our our two firm model threatens their model in some ways. Um, if, if if they want to look at it that way, I don't think they should. But if 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 um, I'm sure there are some people that might. Uh, so there is inherent stress in it. I don't want people to feel like they cannot come up with a devil's advocate position or respectfully offer a different perspective. That's what I want, right? That's what I want from folks, and I want to create a safe. I want to create the safety uh, for the lawyers on the team to do that no matter where they may sit.
0: So uh, so we just got out of mid-year question, and uh, that has a lot of resonance, what you're talking about with me, because the, the project that we were working on was really thinking about what does the future of work look like, and we did a lot of research into that, And Google did a really interesting uh, experiment, or I'd say, uh, they did their own research several years ago. I think it was called Project Aristotle. And the thing that they found that was the common denominator in high-performing teams was psychological safety. Mm -hmm. And I think that's ringing through in what you're talking about. And it's interesting because I think we often think about teamwork as in the context of people in our organization who are on a team. But one of the things I find so interesting about the work you do is that you really have to manufacture that with what are effectively project-focused teams who come together and work on these really hard things for some fixed period of time. And so one of the things that just struck me about the conversation we had is how thoughtful you are at setting the conditions for that to be successful.
1: Well, I yeah, I mean, I, 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 again don't want to make it seem like this is an easy task always but but the goal is and i'll come back to this over and over the goal is to is to help the client solve its problem my client their client right our client is microsoft corporation and i think that's a that's a helpful sort of centering uh principle um and to do that you need uh, you don't need groupthink. You need good peer review, right? You need good, healthy peer review. And you, you can't do that without people feeling safe. So just, you're preaching the choir.
0: Okay. Well, so when we talked, there was. Uh... <laughs> One uh, kind of, I don't know if it's a, a principle is the right word, but um, we, we talked a little bit about uh, kind of are there any rules of engagement uh, that you sometimes set uh, ahead of time? And you I think you made a remark in our conversation that I found very interesting. And I'm, I'm curious if you want to reflect on that at all. I think it was specifically regarding parenting.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, I, I remember that. Yeah, I, I think that's more um, a rule of engagement uh, I touched on earlier. If if, if you have personal difficulties uh, with another lawyer uh, who's on the same, you know, team writ large, um, you know, I, I've had cases I would say where people have sort of raised those. I've had I had a very recent example where where uh, you know someone raised a personal problem they had with another lawyer, another team, and and my view is. You know, you should go talk to that other person. Why are you talking to me? <laughs> you know, and, I, and it did it did remind me of sometimes when I, you know, my sons come to me is like he did this and he did that, and I said, well, did you did you talk to him? Did you tell him you didn't like th- when he did that? No. Well, why don't you try that as a first step? So, yeah, I mean, I think the rules of engagement to go back to the, to to where I was a few minutes ago is, I am absolutely open to resolving ambiguities or you know, strategic differences in the sense of, you know, there, there, there's a, I mean, most of these cases are difficult problems, right? There may be real disagreements in terms of approach. Let's hash those out um, in a respectful way where people feel comfortable uh, raising concerns but also, help, you know, helpful in collaborating. But personal issues, you know, if you have a personal issue, if you think someone is not being honest or open with you, like go go to that person. Don't come to me.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm curious. Are there any other kind of emblematic behaviors that you've observed that that can drive you a little bit crazy in these teaming scenarios?
1: Uh, I, I guess that the I'd rather talk about what what the. What I look for, in yeah, pe- let's people, go there. You know, because it's—I I don't want to. You know, we can all talk about the negative aspects, and I'd say the negative aspects are sort of the flip sides of the positive aspects. Mm-hmm. I mean, w- what I look for is, you know, it, there is a personality type. I mean, the, the lone wolf personality is probably not your—I'm not saying they're not a great lawyer; they could be, but they're not the great—they're not the type of person that you want to staff in a multi-firm engagement. Um, uh, the people that have you know huge egos and tend to drive their associates into the ground and don't listen very closely to other people around them that think that they know the best uh, and you know and and are not open to to other points of view. I just don't like selecting those people as lawyers to begin with, but they they certainly don't um, meet the requirements of a of a multi multi firm team or a two firm team. Um, at the same time, you know you want people, and we've touched on this that 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 although they're collaborative, they're open to playing the devil's advocate. You want a red team blue team uh, dynamic to come out of this because that's what really gives you the insights sometimes that you need. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know sort of t- so I think the third big piece, and I've already mentioned it, but it is it's just the pole star. You want someone who's focused on the client,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And sort of the the ego-driven people often are, are, interestingly, focused more on themselves and can't really function in that team environment as well. Um, but the person, one thing you know, and I always come back to is, always come back to this with the team: what's in the best, what's the best thing for our client right here, right? Not what's the best thing for, you know, this firm or this partner in this firm, or let's, we're not here to stroke the egos of these people we're here to do what is best for this client right now and often that means that I'm turned my own point of view is turned around I came in with a point of view that the best thing for the client is X and a- after that discussion I, I uh, come to the opposite point of view uh, because somebody has made a very compelling argument so I want to foster that uh, so I think the ego driven person is not appropriate uh, the person who's not willing to collaborate or listen is not appropriate. But also, the person that's too quiet and timid is not appropriate. Mm-hmm. The best uh, sort of example of this that I that I uh, have ever found is my mentor at Heller, Ehrman and Ork with Bob Rosenfeld, um, who's a t- terrific lawyer who's uh, represented this co- company in you know dozens of matters over the years. But but he he really is is that. Person. And there are a number of other people I I could name. I mean, uh, Jim Garland at Covington is is another terrific example of that. Uh, Steve Rummage, you know, these folks are really, um, they get it done. They're fantastic lawyers, but they are focused on the client. They don't, uh, you know, they're they're thoughtful, they're open to feedback. But ultimately, they want to get to the right result.
0: So I think you really have given us the recipe on this, which is you're looking for partners who are taking the long view and are going to take care of you, that are really thinking about what you need first, and they're willing to sublimate the ego to drive outcomes that are best for you as the client that they serve.
1: Yeah, although I don't think of myself as a client, honestly, I think of Microsoft Corporation as the client. I want people that are looking out for the interests of Microsoft Corporation, and I think there is a distinction there.
0: Okay, so that's interesting. So when can you give me a little bit more on that? On when people are overly focused on per, perhaps the person as the client versus the the larger entity as the client.
1: Well, I, I remember in private practice, and I'm sure you do too, some partners saying, "Oh no, no, don't tell this client anything that he or she doesn't want to hear," or let's. Uh, well, that's an example of a lawyer not doing a very good job, in my view and i think it's absolutely outside counsel's role and i want it i want them to tell me that i'm wrong if they believe that and to, and to persuade me the interest that we all serve is the client's interest it's my client too it's it's microsoft corporation it's not the you know the people that do xbox it's not the people that you know do it's not the people sitting in germany it it is microsoft corporation it's not this sub or that sub and so, and it's not it's certainly not me. And so I, I want people that are r- truly and legitimately focus on the client's interest. That is our north star. And you know, the the interesting thing is when people do that in a team, it, everybody is is absolutely clear about that, it really does float all boats. I mean, ev- everybody can use that.
0: Uh, in having
1: respectful disagreements, hey, no, I think actually this would, might be harmful to Microsoft's uh, reputation if we do X, Y, or Z, right? Not that you're wrong, Jason. I just, let me explain to you why I think it's in Microsoft's interest to do something different.
0: So, So I suspect to invoke that behavior from your outside counsel, it is critical to create the psychological safety you were talking about earlier because if they're afraid that they show up and they say something that's going to make you angry or upset then they're not going to do that then that's an uphill walk for them and so it sounds like some of the things that you do that probably create the conditions for more of that t- healthy tension, those conversations, is making it clear to people that this is what I expect from you. I really want you to challenge our assertions, and I'm not going to chop your head off if you do that respectfully and if you're trying to serve a client. Yeah,
1: I I, I certainly aspire to create that environment. I'm You, you know, it, it doesn't mean that, that I've not had very, very spirited engagements, conversations with outside lawyers working on cases these tend to be stressful situations but if, if boy if anybody ever feels like they can't tell me the truth or they can't raise a legitimate or any concern frankly a, that, that really goes to the clients interests uh, I just don't think I'm doing my job I would hope that, that that folks would 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 flag that issue for me because that that is what we all have to be guided by
0: So. In in our discussion, you have alluded to I think what is effectively healthy tension. So you can call it skepticism. You can call it different perspectives being brought to bear. And I'm curious if you if there are ever situations where it's really not an opportunity to try to get that by let's just say doing a comparative bid. And so. You, you really need that injected on something because it's an important matter and, and, and teaming just becomes the most effective and expedient way to do that. Does that ever come up for you?
1: Yeah, I, I think it I think it does absolutely in there there are certain as I talked about the warrant case, there are certain cases where or certain let's just it doesn't have to be a case. There are certain legal issues and um, you know, we just got out of NYQs, and you can see this. This is, I think, what you know, part of the the genius of how those are set up to bring people together with different perspectives. Um, and all of those questions, uh, almost without exception, are really hard problems. Without, you know, a so-called right answer. Um, and you know, the types of cases where where you know I or David or some other. Litigator in our team, you know, would be bringing in two two team two teams of lawyers. The types of questions we would do that. These are not, you know, go go look up uh, the black letter law and figure it out. These are hard, hard questions and hard, um, hard problems. And so, uh, I agree with the NYQ approach. In most circumstances, you're going to get if people engage in good faith to try to solve a hard problem and bring different perspectives to it, you're gonna to get to a better outcome. And that's really the premise of, and you're not gonna to get to that outcome just by having a competitive bid scenario where you end up choosing, okay, I'm gonna go with you instead of that person. Maybe the right answer in that particular setting is to, is to go with both of them. And we've done that a couple times where we actually have put a case out to bid, and you realize, boy, both of these firms there are two firms here that bring some really interesting perspectives to bear, and I, and I actually want both of them. Um, and, you know, again, we don't want to sugarcoat it. At times, I mean, it certainly does tend to drive up the cost, um, but you have to look at what the benefit is and what the value is um, for doing that. Um, there are times where you don't have two firms on a case, and you know, what we will often do is bring in peer reviewers late in the case, or we have a, a a moot court or a mock trial, or we bring folks from other firms. It's also a great thing to do. But then you realize, wow, we now have to go back and course correct and do a bunch of things over, and you end up being inefficient in that way. You know, what if we had had this perspective earlier on or even throughout, right? And that's that's really the the value of, of the, you know, the two in the box approach. It's not for every case, obviously, but um, it, it, it's very effective.
0: So I, I think you're, you're highlighting kind of the scenario wherein, where you really need creativity, where you really need breadth of perspectives. It's often net efficient and you're taking the long view when you're willing to invest more upfront. And I think that has taken many forms in what you've described. One is potentially bringing on two firms, which will increase your cost. But the other thing that you've described is really making sure that you're giving more access to you, to your thinking, to the things that you care about. And I think that's probably part of the the pattern for success that I I suspect you you apply consistently. and that's, just, that's really interesting because I, I think you end up working on issues that often don't have that right or wrong answer. And I, it, to me, I, I always find it interesting when we have these conversations to just kind of peek into your mind and see how you look at coming up with a solution when there is not... One solution, mm-hmm. right? Like there are many ways you can go, and it's really thinking about and engineering the interactions and the partnerships so that you get the best outcomes. And I, I just find that really interesting.
1: It's it's fascinating to me because I, I can I can, um, in the back of my mind, I'm already thinking I'm already thinking of you know two or three examples of where, um, we. You know, we have one firm working a case. They're doing a great job. They're writing memos. We agree with the memos. I agree with them. They're they're doing analysis. They're providing strategic advice. I agree with it. Everybody is sort of um, going on their merry way. And uh, you have a mock trial, for instance. And you roll out your strategy, and you try, and you invite some other, you know, um, really terrific lawyers to that who have not been working the case. And they say, hey, have you thought about doing it this completely different way? <laughs> and it's not that the, you know, it's not that the legal work done by the primary firm was in any way bad or, or you know, not thoughtful or anything like that. It's just, um, it's just remarkable what, what you know, just can happen from dialogue. And, uh, you know, we've had examples um where we actually do something that's even a, really a formal red team, blue team approach where you have the two firms really taking opposite positions and, 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 you know, almost trying the case or doing a, a focus group thing. And I think everybody always comes out of those with, with greater insights. Right. And so uh, the, the, it, it's just, it's, it's a hard thing to operationalize because you can't do it for every case, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see because it challenges, one of the things I have told David Howard, my manager so many times is the biggest, um, i say, I don't know if it's biggest, certainly one of the biggest, um, problems that we can have, uh, is just to drink our own Kool-Aid and, um, it's totally a normal human response, right? You, you know, your client, you know, the, the, the business people you're talking to are outraged by this case and they, you know, and you get outraged by the case and then, you know, your outside counsel work it up, get outraged by this case and you develop a very, you know, defensive strategy um, because everyone's outraged by this case and we're all reinforced, we're all in an echo chamber, right? And, you know, you take it up and, and you know, our senior managers are outraged by the case and uh, you know, and then somebody comes from out of you know left field and said, "Well, wait a minute, you're all outraged by this. I mean, that, it actually doesn't seem that outrageous, right? And, and but it doesn't occur to anybody, right? So uh, it's that type of perspective that we have to we have to seek, and sometimes it's super painful.
0: It is. We become captive to our ideas. Yeah, right?
1: we do. And you it's get kind of kind of intoxicated with them sometimes. Yeah. And,
0: I also suspect that really effective litigators are so good at advocacy that they really do tend to bend people around them Absolutely. into their perspective. Absolutely,
1: you know. And we hire great lawyers. We hire great outside counsel. Obviously, uh, they are terrific litigators, and uh, yeah, they can probably persuade you of anything. And mm-hmm. if they're telling you what you already believe, boy, you know, you know that you don't need much. More so, um, it's 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 a the drinking the own Kool Aid or the groupthink problem. I think is a real issue, and 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 I I do th- I have not found a better answer to that problem than the sort of two firm or multi firm, you know, just to to bring a real culture of peer review into the process. So even in those, as I said, even in those cases where we don't have two firms working the case from the beginning and this is really something david howard has been um he's been on this from from the moment he got here is let's do early case evaluations and let's bring people you know fresh sets of eyes and let's do peer reviews and let's bring fresh sets of eyes and not just from outside but even from within our our group right if you know uh Jen Yokoyama doesn't have any any connection to this case, but let's bring her in and see what she has to say about this, um, in in a structured way. Um, but let's bring outside lawyers that we trust to our you know our trusted advisors, um, and and let's just get fresh perspectives, and let's do that at more inflection you know at, at, you know at, at let's do that you know at, at different inflection points in the case, um, and you know. And then even after the case, you know, bring people in to have a debrief and figure out what went well, what didn't go as well, and what can we learn from it, and bring some other points of view in there as well. So uh, I think having that culture of, of, I call it a culture of peer review, but it's a, you know, it's 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 important.
0: I so we uh, on our team we work with David on law firm engagement. Um, And he does the same thing with us, where he really does push us to kind of test our assumptions. And we we recently had a a meeting with him, uh, I think it was yesterday, which was great, where he basically said, yeah, do you still believe that? Why? Like, why do you? And it was like, huh. And it really gave us a moment of pause. Like, have we become captive to these ideas, or do we still have enough naivety and objectivity to really evaluate them? So... One of the things that kind of grows out of this idea of multiple perspectives, different ways of doing things, is this the general concept of innovation. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on why you know, we have these firms that are, are really, they're very good at bringing forward all kinds of novel ideas about how to do legal work. They, you can team them together and they, they work well. But when it comes to changing sometimes how the work is done, it seems like, it feels like sometimes they struggle. Have you observed that?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and I've observed it both from the inside and from the outside. I mean. Uh, you know, 17 years in, in big law firms, um, and I would say um, you hear the word innovation a lot, but uh, I, I, I really don't think they're very innovative as institutions, and I think, frankly, the incentives are aligned against innovation, and it goes back to where we started. They sell ours, and if, if they can do something innovative that means that they can do for me or you— uh, or Microsoft in one hour what previously took them two hours to do um, there's really not a lot of incentive for them to do that and I think that's one of the I think that is um, one factor um, I, I also think it's just um, and it's, it's, a, it's a flip side of the same fundamental business model problem you know any hour that they're not billing thinking about innovation or serving on an innovation committee or thinking about what technologies they should use or how they better, you know, become better knowledge managers or any of that. Any hour they spend doing that as a lawyer is an hour that they're not billing a client. So again, the business model is, it works against it. And going even beyond that, any hour that they pay somebody else to do that comes directly out of their check you know, of profits, whether it's quarterly or at the end of the year. And law firms are fragile institutions, they're, they're, they're on a cash flow basis, they pay their operating expenses out of cash flow, or they have to take loans to do it, right? And they distribute all their profits at the end of every year. Um, so every, every sort of incentive in the organization, in, in my view, kind of pushes against real innovation, Notwithstanding the fact that they talk a lot about innovation, and I don't mean to be critical of my my great friends at, at terrific law firms around the country. I don't think any person or law firm is at fault. I just think there's a, a fundamental problem in the model or an incentive structure in the model that pushes against innovation.
0: I, I don't have much to add to that. I, I think you laid out bare some of the systemic challenges and why really people are, are responding to incentives when you really boil it down, right? And to expect them to work against their self-interest on a sustained basis, I don't know, like that that I, it doesn't seem to happen. Um, and I, I will say that like you and I saw close up how fragile these organizations really can be. We certainly did. Yeah, that was a, an interesting learning experience. I, I'm curious. So you, control a lot of spend, really high impact work, like just some some of the the premium work that's out there. And
1: can, I, can you can you stop saying how much I spend? I, well, just, I'm just kidding. I, I, sorry.
0: <laughs> Look, I, 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 I speak truth <laughs> to power, John. I don't know what to tell you. And I'm I'm curious what you think about with regards to the composition of the practice of law and what what are some of the things that we might do to help kind of evolve that so that it looks a little bit closer to the composition of society
1: yeah i mean uh, in, in terms of uh bringing more diversity into the into the law firms and and what we can do to push for that um uh you know, again, I, I'm going to, I started by making, you know, sort of obvious observations. I mean, there's a very obvious observation here that a lot of people have said, I'm, I'm, I'm just simply echoing it, um, but it's true, uh, you, you know, it's in our business interest to have, uh, you know, a diverse set of attorneys representing Microsoft before regulators and judges and, uh, legislators and other decision makers who are who, who represent the diversity of our nation. And uh, and then, you know, you take that even broadly globally. I mean, we're a global com- company. Um, I mean, we need people to represent us that rep- that, 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 that um, represent the diversity of of the world increasingly. and, and uh, so that that is a fundamental business interest that Microsoft has. Um, I think we can probably always do better at, um, really, uh, making that crystal clear to the law firms. Um, I think we can, you know, and we do that in a number of ways. And I know you're very, very focused on that and and we in the litigation team have certainly been very focused on that in our, in our bidding process and in conveying our ex- expectations that we want a lead, we want a, a, a lead lawyer who's diverse. You know, it could be first chair, second chair, but um, you know, the, the diversity met, you know, we, we want to see diversity metrics and you know, it, it can't just be the junior associates on the team, right? We want to see people elevated to leadership roles in these firms because it's that important to us. And it is it is extremely important, uh, but we can we can always do better. I think at essentially demanding or making that crystal clear that if you want uh, as a firm to represent this this incredibly important client, then you know this is something that you need to be be very thoughtful and proactive about. I do think again it is. Um, I don't want to get too personal here, but I mean, I what I think there are some incentives or counter incentives in law firms that push up against this and, and make this a difficult problem. Um, and uh, it comes back to a business model issue. Um, I don't think you know. I think people in these in these terrific law firms are 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 trying very hard in good faith to come up with solutions to this problem. I absolutely believe that um, and uh, are trying in good faith to um, bring diversity into their, into their firms. Um, but they've got to overcome some business model hurdles sometimes to do that. And I just go back to the conversation we had about technology and being innovative. I mean, um, you know, non-billable work. It takes non-billable work. It takes hiring people. It takes doing stuff that it does not necessarily, on an annual basis, drop to your bottom line. And unfortunately, most law firms are operating on a year-to-year bottom line. That's the way they are. Ever since Amlaw 100 started publishing the Profits per Partner, you know, for the, the, the biggest 100 law firms in the country, um, you know, there's been this arms race uh, on profits per partner. And there are very powerful incentives to, uh, to to keep those numbers high. And it all goes back to where we started the intense competition for talent and reputation.
0: We've come full circle. I, I will remark that uh, LCCG. Uh, really does walk the talk and i get to see the numbers on a lot of things and more greater than 90 percent of your matters that were put out to comparative bid did have a diverse person as either the first or the second chair and so i think you did a fantastic job of articulating the business case but it's also great to see that you guys actually land that and i think that has real impact and it does change behavior and hopefully some of the comments that you you offer today will help people think about why it is probably in their best long-term interest if they want to partner with Microsoft to think about the business case for doing some of the things that you're talking about.
1: I mean, and part of that that that, that frankly has made it easier for us is there are a lot of terrific lawyers out there. There are, I mean, there are a lot of great lawyers, and this is why you know I, I go back to the comment about. You know, I don't tend to select the lone wolves who don't listen to anybody and want to do their own thing and think they're the best. Um, and part of the reason I don't select them is because there are a lot of people out there that are terrific lawyers, just like they are, and they're not that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have choice because there are a lot of great lawyers, and um, fortunately today we have you know better choices than, than um, certainly when I came in to uh, legal practice. Uh, so yeah, mm-hmm. we just need to keep pushing.
0: uh, Amen. Well, John, we are at time. This has flown by. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic.
1: Yeah. Thanks for inviting me.